Welcome to Birkbeck Voices. I'm Bryony Merritt. Today I'm speaking to Professor Jan Ruber from Birkbeck's Department of History, Classics and Archaeology about his new book, Heligoland, Britain, Germany and the Struggle for the North Sea. Thank you for talking to me today, Jan. Thank you. So first up, I think many of our listeners would probably benefit from you telling us what and where Heligoland is physically. Heligoland is a, an extremely small island, an islet really, out in the North Sea, in in the, the southeastern corner of the North Sea, closer to the much closer to the, the German coast than the East English coast. And can you outline for us why this tiny islet is important enough to warrant a whole book being written about it? <laughs> so this this island really for me allowed two things. One, it made it possible to tell the story of Britain and Germany in the modern age from a new angle. So not just from Berlin and, and London, not just the, the, the cockpits of two nation states at loggerheads, um, uh, but to tell this story from the space where the two meet, where they overlap, where they for a long time collaborate and then conflict. And the other thing is that it allows us to see how this Anglo-German relationship over two centuries was made sense of, was felt, what sorts of meanings it had for real people in between those two nations. Very often in these big histories of two or more nations, histories of international relations, small people don't matter, don't even feature. It's a few statesmen, typically, in this case in Wilhelmstrasse and and at Whitehall, and those who actually experience conflict um, uh, between these two great powers in the 19th and, and early 20th century uh, very rarely feature. Here they do. There are a few thousand people on this island who are in between and whose, whose status changes from being part of the British Empire to becoming part of Imperial Germany, being made Germans towards the end of the 19th century. And throughout the 20th century, their status remains uh, somewhat ambiguous, conflicted between the two. So, so those were the two main reasons why I think that the, the island matters. And uh, you've described the island as an island of the mind. What do you mean by that? So while a lot of conflict takes place that has this island as a a focus, this is turned into Germany's most potent naval fortress by the Kaiser and then again by Hitler. So it's very much an actual uh, strategic site. But arguably it plays much more of a role as a metaphor, as a metaphor um, of friendship for much of the 19th century, as a metaphor of enmity, for much of the 20th century, and then as a metaphor of reconciliation towards the end of the um, uh, 20th century. And that ultimately makes the book work, I think. You can tell the local story and what people there experienced. You can tell the story of how two nations clashed over this smallest of Britain's ex-colonies by the time war breaks out um, in, in 1914. But ultimately... The strategic value is much smaller than the the value of this, than the symbolic value of this of this island, um, as a metaphor that that is used both in in Britain and Germany and and many other countries, um, a metaphor of what went wrong between the two nations, um, and and that's really what intrigued me. And you use Heligoland to situate the world wars within the longer history of Anglo-German conflict and cooperation, um, from the Napoleonic Wars right through to the Cold War. Why does Heligoland fulfil this purpose so well? Yes, that was that was my speculation. There was an element of risk when I first started the, the research because I knew that there would be a lot of very good material on the very late 19th century, the wars and post-1945. Uh, 
Um, but I wasn't entirely sure whether I would have enough material on the period before, um, and especially the period before there even exists a German nation state, when this is Britain's smallest uh, colony. And and to my great surprise and delight, there's actually much more material for that period than, than I could ever have uh, dreamt of. Uh, you know, there are hundreds of files in the in the uh, National Archives just on the colonial um, uh, period. And what that allowed me to do was to really unfold this story from the moment the island, if you like, enters the international international stage when it gets relevance uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, all the way to the Cold War, when with Anglo-German reconciliation and both powers being part of an alliance dominated by uh, the US, this island slowly but surely exits um, the, the internationalist stage and, and um, you know, slips back into the sort of oblivion that it had enjoyed at the very beginning of the 19th century. So it's already in the conflict between Britain and France during the Napoleonic Wars that this site plays a strategic role. And during that time, it's very much a site of Anglo-German cooperation. It's a, it's a key site through which to infiltrate the French-dominated continent, a site through which to support insurgents and allies on the continent, and perhaps most significantly, a site for smuggling. So Napoleon, of course, sets up the, the continental system, which forbids any trade with the British Isles. And Heligoland is one of the two islands through which this system is circumvented and ultimate, ultimately broken. A staggering amount of especially colonial produce is first brought to that island um, from the, the British Isles, and then in much smaller ships sailed from that island uh, to the continent and, and then um, funneled into the black markets. And that was, to, to my great delight, that is very well documented. Uh, and so you can tell the story of this island, not only with a focus on the period in which things go terribly and tragically wrong between Britain and Germany, but also the much longer story of co collaboration and a, a lot of very intriguing forms, really, of coexistence. On the island, you, you have, for example, a governor who translates Bismarck's letters, governor who writes plays in German and English, a governor who invites the best actors from the German-speaking lands to his colony, um, is married to uh, one of the most famous uh, actresses from, from Vienna, and for whom this colony really epitomizes an Anglo-German, much more than collaboration, um, uh, uh, really the, the many cultural and personal individual ties that exist between people who then later become parts of nation states and, and see themselves much more as, uh, as such. And um, you've already mentioned the people living on the island. What did it mean for the people who lived there to be directly caught up in this struggle for the North Sea? And how did their experience fit into that of other Britons and Germans during the historical period that you cover? So when I started the research, I was tempted to see them mostly as victims, as passive people on the ground who are being told one day that they're turning into Germans and who have got very little say in this. While it's true that they haven't got much say in this, and while it's true that their sources of power are so much smaller than, than the two that than Britain and Germany um, are on, on the two sides, as it were, of, of the North Sea, they play a much more active role than I had, had uh, originally anticipated. And so that whenever there is a significant change in the balance of power, whenever it becomes a distinct possibility that their small island might be ruled by someone different, they are very swift at playing a diplomatic game, if you like, a sort of form of diplomacy from below, which allows them not necessarily to influence the sort of big power decision-making, 
but it allows them very much to influence this kind of settlement that they will benefit from. And that's to be seen especially in the privileges and traditional rights that they manage to hang on to through every regime change. So from Danish to British, from Britain to Imperial Germany, from Imperial Germany to Weimar Germany, from Weimar Germany to Nazi Germany, from Nazi Germany to de facto British occupation, and then back to West Germany. So there are a number of significant changes in, in, the, in the bigger political picture. The islanders managed to hang on to their privileges, which have mostly to do with exempt, exemption from all sorts of taxes. And they are able to argue that case by continuously referring to the rights that were originally granted to them by the British when they first literally took the island from the Danish. And so that there's a more active role that these islanders play. They never see themselves as either British or German. Until really very late in the 20th century, you, you get hardly any Heligolanders, apart from some very right-wing ones, perhaps uh, during the Nazi period, publicly blame themselves as, uh, uh, as Germans who found a place in this great nation. They're very, very keen to um, emphasize their independence, their independent traditions, their language, which they see not as akin to German, but independent from German and English. And that is part of both a political and, and cultural need, if you like, this, this, this long tradition of, of independence. Great. Thank you so much for talking to us more about your book. Um, remind me who published it. It's published with OUP and it's Heligoland, uh, Britain, Germany and the struggle for the North Sea. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Bet Bet Voices. Join us again soon.